Yeah. We're on the air. We're actually trying live today. That's why I've got two <coughs> cameras here. We're going to try to do Instagram live and then uh, the normal video that will be up on Facebook <coughs> and YouTube. That'll be ready. So let's get started, guys. We're, this is the last, <coughs> the last time you have to hear me cough, hopefully. Good Lord. <coughs> It'd be nice to have this bug gone by in the new year. This is our last session for the year. We've been in Deuteronomy all year. The year before, we were in Numbers. The year before that, Leviticus. And the year before that, Exodus. All the way back to Genesis. Well, Genesis was a year and a half. So we've flown through Deuteronomy. Yes, sir, question. Yes. Depends on how long you plan on living. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're going to go, and we're just going to go, and we'll let the Lord determine how far we get. <laughs> but pretty much every church you walk into focuses on New Testament, so that's why we focus on Old Testament, give you some supplemental food for your theological journey as we eat the food here for our physical journey. Um, as always, <clears throat> the food is provided free by Ruth's, and so we want to thank them. Um, just leave a donation, leave a tip. It goes straight to the kitchen. I don't get any of it. And just show them how much we appreciate it. We will not be meeting, obviously, next week, Christmas, and then the week after is New Year's Day. So two weeks off. <clears throat> we're going to come back in the new year, and <coughs> we're going to hit the round running with Joshua. And so I'm going to be prepping for the next two weeks for that, doing some translating, doing some reading, getting kind of the lay of the land. But we're going to go into Joshua, and Joshua is... One of, probably one of the most challenging books to teach in the Old Testament. It's one of those books that people think they like because they've heard a sermon or two from it. You know, there's like a couple of go-to sermon verses in Joshua. But uh, the book itself is pretty hard and dark and, and tough to swallow to the point that early Christians didn't even know what to do with it. So they just interpreted it as an allegory because Joshua and Jesus are the same name. So they were like, oh, it's all about Jesus conquering sin. It's a pretty rough book, and we're going to face it full on. We're not going to uh, shy away from it like we do. <clears throat> What's that? No, no candy coating, no sugar coating. We're going to look at it, wrestle with it, because that's what we do. That's, that's the whole point of this Bible study. Um, if you've missed any sessions, by the way, again, the reason we have the camera set up here, even when it malfunctions sometimes, is so we capture all of this on video perpetuity. So go to YouTube. And just search Disciple Dojo, and that's our channel, youtube.com slash Disciple Dojo, one word. And all of the videos, all the way back to Genesis 12, are available on our YouTube channel. Uh, if you prefer listening in your car, go on SoundCloud or Stitcher or Apple Podcast and subscribe to Disciple Dojo. All the way going back to Exodus are uh, available in audio format. So you can listen while you drive. So anyway, <clears throat> again, we are, this study is more than just coming together and doing a Bible study. We are cultivating and building a resource library that's going to last for as long as the internet lasts and that'll be available to people all over the world. So that's what you're part of when you come and support this. Uh, so let's get to Deuteronomy. Let's finish the book out because last week we saw this, the, the blessings that Moses blesses the tribes with. It's kind of speaking into existence their future, what they would be. And then now, we come to chapter 34. <clears throat> Moses has, think about where we are now. We're standing, he's standing on Mount, he's going up to Mount Nebo. <clears throat> he's looked, he's seen the entire promised land stretched out before him, all the way from the Galilee in the north, all the way down to the Dead Sea in the south. 
<clears throat> and he's seeing the land, the formidable land. It's, it's incredible. There's the, the mountains literally rise up as you look across the Jordan Valley. The mountains rise up and then it disappears into haze. On a clear day, you can see all the way to Jerusalem. Uh, back in this time before industrial pollutants in the air, you probably could have much more often. But the whole land is stretched out before him. And Moses is looking and he's about to send his children into that land. And they've become his children. He blesses them like a patriarch blesses his children before he dies. Even though Moses is one of them, <coughs> they've become his spiritual children. And now we come to the last chapter. <clears throat> then Moses climbed Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah across from Jericho. There the Lord showed him the whole land from Gilead to Dan, all of Naphtali, the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the Western Sea. That's the Mediterranean Ocean. <clears throat> then the Lord said to him, this is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when I said I will give it to your seed, your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over into it. So remember, all the, what's, what's God saying when I promised on oath? Those of you that are here, Genesis 15. All the way back to Genesis 15, God promised Abram. God brought Abram out one night. <clears throat> Think back. Abram was childless. He had a big family. He had lots of servants. I mean, Abram was a traveling community, but he had no descendant. <clears throat> and so he went out one night, and he was just praying to God. He said, God, I, you know, what am I going to leave behind? You know, like at the end of your life, if you've amassed wealth, fortune, status, if you don't have a family to carry it on, that can be a tough pill to swallow for some people. And for Abraham, and particularly in the ancient world, that was everything. And he said, I don't have a child. I have no offspring. And God took him outside. He said, look up. See if you can count the stars. He said, that's what your offspring are going to be like. And at that moment, Abraham believed God. He had no reason to believe him because he was, he was a, a nanogenarian. Octogen, what's in your 90s? Whatever he was. <laughs> and he had not had kids. And his wife was in her 80s. She had not had kids. And so he had no reason to believe that he would ever have anybody descended from him. His, his heir of his household was Eliezer of Damascus, a Syrian servant who he was going to give everything to because that was his, his uh, adopted heir. And God said, no, you're going to have an offspring, uh, a son from your, own, your very own body. And so, again, that's the history of Israel is God providing this miraculous way where there is no way. There's no human way. And so he had son, and he had Isaac, and then Isaac had two sons. And God said, I'm going to carry the promise through Jacob. And then Jacob had 12 sons, and those 12 sons grew and became the tribes of Israel. And those tribes were in Egypt for 400 years. And before all of that, God had told Abram, your descendants are going to be enslaved in a land for 400 years. But in the time, in that generation, I'm going to bring them back to this land because by that time, the sin of the peoples of this land, the Canaanites, will have reached its full measure. In other words, will, my grace will have run out and my judgment then will fall. And it will just so happen that while I'm getting ready to judge the peoples, the specific peoples, not every other nation, <clears throat> God didn't give Israel carte blanche to go in and do what they want to any peoples. It was particular peoples that He said. The Canaanites, the ones who did the worship practices and the, and the, the evil that we've seen in the previous books... <laughs> When the time is right for them to be judged, your offspring will be coming out of Egypt as a mighty judgment army that will march in the land and drive out the vestiges of Canaanite idolatry. That's the plan. 
And so that's now what Moses, and Moses should have been, the first generation of Israel should have been gone. They should have gone into the land. They should already be settled by now. But that generation refused to take the, pre- uh, the blessing that God had given, refused to believe God. <clears throat> and so God said, fine, you will die in the desert and your bodies will litter the desert floor and your children will inherit the blessing. Because again, I repeat this again, God will never break His promise to His people. But individual persons have to choose whether they will remain in that realm of blessing or not. And the generation that came out of Egypt chose to reject the blessing and reject the promises. So, is that going to make God a liar? No. They're just going to be cut off from the blessing. But their descendants will inherit it. The people of God collectively cannot fail. But individual persons within that people absolutely can fail and can make what Paul says a shipwreck of their faith and be cut off, to use the language of the Old Testament. And that's what happened to the old generation. They were cut off. <clears throat> that's what the whole, the whole visual metaphor of circumcision is cutting off. And that's the sign of the covenant. And when you break the covenant, you are cut off. And that's what happens to the whole previous generation. So now, at the end of their life, only two people left Egypt as adults and entered into Canaan. Only two. Joshua and Caleb. Jesus and dog, if you translate their names correctly. Um, <clears throat> Jew and Gentile. Remember, Caleb was a Gentile. He was a Kenizzite. So <clears throat> that is who is going to enter the land that left the original generation. Even Moses, Aaron, Miriam, and Moses, even they will not enter the land. Why? Because of their open disobedience. Because of their open rebellion. Moses slipped up once, but it was a very severe slip up because he was the face of God to the people. And when, when someone of that stature messes up, it is much more significant than when some normal person messes up. Remember James 3.1, not all of you should be teachers, brothers. Those of us who teach will be held to a higher standard. So in Moses' case, it's a tragedy that's echoed throughout the centuries. Moses labored 120 years old. 80 of those years was laboring to bring the people out of Egypt into this land, and then it's gone. It's all, he, he doesn't get to see any of it. So it says, verse 5, Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. He buried him, he, God, buried him in the valley opposite of Beth Peor. But to this day, no one knows where his grave is. Moses was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak nor his strength gone. The Israelites grieved for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days until the time of weeping and mourning was over. So the end of an era. Moses, the deliverer, baby from Exodus, <clears throat> all the way back to Exodus, the deliverer, now he has finally died and he's laid to rest by God Himself. His grave is not known. It's not marked. Um, there's, if you go to Mount Nebo now, there's, on top of Mount Nebo, there's a giant bronze serpent. Uh, to symbolize, because this is where the whole thing of the bronze serpent, that they lifted up in the wilderness and everything. And <clears throat> that bronze serpent, the original, was destroyed during the time of the prophets because the people had venerated it as an idol and started worshiping it as, his, as its own god, Nehushtan, the serpent. They started worshiping that thing. So even something God had given got turned into idolatry. And so God had it destroyed. Well, Moses of all the graves in Israel that would be the most venerated would be Moses's. And so God intentionally buries Moses somewhere where nobody ever knows. 
Moses' body is somewhere in the wilderness in today, modern Jordan, uh, ancient Moab, in the mountains somewhere around Mount Nebo. And that's where it will always remain until the resurrection. And, and God's intentional about that. Because there will be no veneration. There will be no, uh, like the other ancient kings or their, the people that thought that they were something in the world, they would want a giant tomb, a mausoleum, a, 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 you know, a monument to their greatness. Moses leaves nothing. He leaves nothing except two tablets in an ark, in a tabernacle. So his whole life was pointed towards God being... See, Moses was not Israel's king. He was telling them, I'm not your king. God is your king. God is the suzerain, not Moses. And so God is the one who, even in Moses' death, is honored. So it's, very, it's, it's, it's pretty touching, but it's also a powerful testimony. Even today, I mean, how many leaders do you see with a fraction of Moses' influence building monuments to themselves? You know, putting their name on buildings or having huge lavish ceremonies or, or even big funerals or, you know, spending tens of thousands on this tomb. It's going to be filled with the same rotting bodies as the lowliest mass grave. You know, it's all going to rot. And so in Moses' life, there's a testament to that. It's a cool testament to that, I think. Um, and God's not done. That's the thing. God's not done with Moses. Hang on for that thought. Verse 9, Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord had commanded Moses. So before Moses died, what did he do? He appointed a successor. And he did it publicly. So that nobody, you know, Joshua walks up and he's like, hey guys, Moses said I'm in charge. Right? Who's going to No. Before he died, Moses made sure that all the people knew this is the guy who's going to continue the thing that I started that's all done from God. So if you don't listen to him, you're not listening to me, you're not listening to God. So listen to him. As a wise leader, before the transition, he made sure to raise up another leader after him. You know, how many times do, again, how many times do people achieve such heights and then forget that they're going to die? They're going to leave everything to who? A group of lawyers? A family members that are going to squabble over the scraps? Like, who are they? No. Wise leaders appoint their successors and they know that they want to make themselves obsolete. At some point, you want to work yourself into obsolescence by raising up somebody who's going to carry on after you step out of the spotlight. Again, leadership lessons from Moses that we could do well to obey. So, verse 10, <coughs> an epitaph to Moses. Since then, no prophet has arisen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those miraculous signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh, all his officials, to the whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Nobody has ever done that until, until, you turn the page from Old Testament to New Testament. And then you see the one who comes, who starts to do things like Moses. Who starts to position himself as if he are, is a new Moses. <clears throat> who starts to do <clears throat> wonders in the wilderness. In the very, who's tempted in the very same spot where Moses dies. The very same area where Moses has written all of this of Deuteronomy. <clears throat> this one goes out into the wilderness after the Spirit of God descends on him after the forerunner to Elijah says, Behold the Lamb of God! 
He's baptized, but only it's in reverse. Israel got baptized by going through the Jordan into the land. Jesus, his baptism goes out of the Jordan into the wilderness to the same place where Israel was tested in the desert. And where Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. Where Israel denied God repeatedly, Jesus not only embraces God and rebukes Satan, but does so by quoting the very book that we've been reading for the past year. Every time Jesus quotes Scripture back at Satan to rebuke him, it's from Deuteronomy. That's not a coincidence. Jesus comes back into the land. He's full of the Spirit. What does He do? He chooses 13, 14, 17 disciples? No, 12. Why? He's reconstituting the people of Israel in Himself. Why? Because He is the seed of Abraham to whom the land was promised. He is. Jesus is. Why? Because Israel has turned astray. All have gone astray. Even their own prophets are saying this. Paul will tell this in Romans. Even your prophets have said that we've all gone astray. So how then can we claim the blessings of God? We can claim it if we are in union with the only one who rightfully has kept the covenant. And so Jesus, His whole life is constituting the new Israel in Himself. Not a new people. Not a Gentile church. That's replacement theology. That's heresy. But there's also not a separate people as if now when Jesus is on the scene there's two peoples of God. That's also heresy. No, Jesus is reconstituting Israel in Himself because He is the One who is the seed of Abraham. He is the One who's the new Moses. What does He do? He goes up on a mount. He starts to speak. He gives new Torah. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. And ironically, it's calling people back to the very same covenant that we've spent the last five years in. Everything Jesus is doing is centered around Torah. That's why He says, if you're reading this, you're reading about Me. He is the prophet who would be like Moses. He is the one who does wonders in the wilderness. He's the one who fed people in the wilderness, just like God had done in Numbers with manna. Jesus now comes in the wilderness and feeds people bread. So he is the one who is not more than seeing and speaking with God face to face like Moses. He is the face of God. He is the place, Peneel, where Jacob had the encounter with God and he said, I've been in the house of God, Bethel. And uh, God said, yeah, you know, Jacob sees this uh, staircase or ladders and angels coming and going up and down. And he names the place Bethel, house of God. Remember back in Genesis. Well, then Jesus comes along and what does he tell uh, who it is? Nathaniel, he says, I saw you under the tree. And he's like, oh my gosh, you saw me under the tree. I kept, you know, and he's, he realizes, and he says, you're going to see more than that. You're going to see angels ascending and descending on me, the Son of Man. Why? Cryptic. But if you know Scripture, Jesus is yelling loud and clear, I am Israel. I'm the fulfillment of Israel. I'm the new Abraham. I'm the new Moses. I'm the new Noah. I'm the new Adam. I'm the son of David. I'm the prophet who would arise. I am who all of it is pointing towards. So all of Torah, if you know Torah, you know Jesus. That's how they preached the Gospel. Before, for 300 years, nobody had a New Testament after the time of Jesus. New Testament was all still letters and and, and oral accounts being circulated that finally got collated and compiled. But before that, how did they preach the Gospel? How How did every apostle preach the Gospel? By going to a synagogue, opening the Torah scroll, and going through all of this. And then saying, hey, listen to this guy, Yeshua. Listen to his life. Listen to what he did. And the coup de grace, when we tried to kill him, God raised him from the dead. You do not get a bigger stamp of approval than that by Yahweh himself. 
So the whole, I mean, all of biblical theology is tied up in Torah, and it's all extrapolated in the life of Jesus. And when we read the two together, you see this beautiful continuity. When you read them separate and isolated, you miss so much. You know, like we've said along, it's like watching a, a sports game in black and white on a little TV with rabbit ears. You can know the score, you can follow the game, you can catch some of the highlights, but you miss the detail when you see it in HD, plasma, 4K, high definition, then you see everything. And you notice the things that you didn't notice before. That's what reading the New Testament when you have an understanding of the Old Testament is like. It's like going from rabbit ears to Best Buy display screen with full surround sound. <laughs> Paul wrestles with this. Paul wrestles with how do my fellow Jews not see this? And, he, and, and one of the things he points to is in the prophets. that there would, It would be more than just the, the mental evidence that there's also a heart issue and there's a rebellion issue and there's, there's a, we want a Messiah, but we want Him to be like this. And God says, yeah, but He's actually going to be like this. And just that discontinuity. I mean, heck, Christians miss it. I mean, just because people are raised in church doesn't mean they have a relationship with Jesus. Miss it all the time. When Jesus comes as the one who was born in Bethlehem in a small peasant household down on the bottom floor where the animals were, because there's no room in the the family lodging rooms upstairs, that's how he entered the world. But yet today, Christians still seem to want this conquering, majestic, mighty, you know, warrior king. And he's always, the lion has always been the lamb. The Lion of Judah has always been the slaughtered lamb and always will be. And so if we don't see it, we miss it easily. Now, fortunately though, thousands and thousands and thousands of Jews didn't miss it. They embraced it. You know, in Acts, 3,000 Pharisees in one day came to faith. You never hear that really mentioned very much. Pharisees are always the bad guys, not the ones that believed. You know, Pentecost was all Jews. All Jew- the Gospel was Jewish. From its earliest origins as Jewish, the church did a terrible disservice when they de-Judaized the gospel in the time of Constantine to, to, to push it further into these two separate peoples. And since then, we've dealt with the ramifications of that in history. But what, that's one of the reasons we do what we do here in this study is to show the, the, the Hebrew roots, the Jewish roots of the faith that today has become seen as a Western Gentile thing. No, it was an Oriental, it was an Eastern, it was a, it was a land of Canaan, land of Palestine, um, the, the ancient Near East. That's the culture that birthed it. And that's what we are the inheritors of today. And so, I mean, it's crazy that you can have somebody be like a white nationalist and a Christian. It just blows my mind. Like, you worship a, you worship a, a, a dark-skinned Middle Eastern Jewish refugee. How could you ever be a nationalist because of that? Um, but that's, that's who it is. So again, that's why we do what we do is to try to push back and get back into the time. So back to Moses because we only have like two minutes left. Um, at the end of this, you know, people have lamented. Why didn't Moses ever get to see the land? He never got to step foot in the land. He never got to step foot in the land. Yes, he did. He did get to step foot in the land. He did. Listen to this quote. This is by Chris Wright at the end of his Deuteronomy commentary. He says, he would never set foot in the land, but his prophetic vision was doubtless as clear as his physical eyesight. And as Moses' undimmed eyes scanned the northern mountains, perhaps one may be allowed to imagine a twinkle in the eyes of Yahweh God, looking forward to that day where Moses, the servant of God, would stand at last on another mountain in the land, conversing with the Son of God about the even greater exodus that he would accomplish in Jerusalem for Israel and for all of the world. 
And so in Luke chapter 9, you see when Jesus goes to the Mount of Transfiguration in Galilee, who appears there? Elijah and Moses. The greatest prophet of the covenant and the greatest prophet of the post-covenantal era. The two greatest in Israel's history appear and they stand face to face and talk with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. So Moses did make it into the land. He just got a different view than we did. <laughs> but it's fascinating to note that and see that, that, that one day, again, he died physically without seeing the end result of what he had labored for. And that in and of itself is a lesson for all of us that, we, that, that God's time to... Remember what God said to Abraham back in Genesis 15. Abraham, I don't have any children. God said, I'm going to give you descendants numerous as the stars of the sky in 400 years. God's timetable is bigger than our timetable. So if you're worried, you know, I don't get the job I want. I'm not married yet. I don't have kids yet. I don't have grandkids yet. And grandparents, I know how y'all are. Um, you know, if you're worried about these type of things, just know that God's timetable is so much longer. Our timetable in social media age is about two weeks. Something is a hot button issue for two weeks and then you forget about it. Right? But in God's kingdom, things span the centuries. And so the key is, as we go into this new year, is to find the difference or note the difference between those things that should be given a two-week lifespan and those things that should be focused on because they're going to last. And so that's what we have as we go into um, next year, I guess, we break for the year. Think about it. Go back through Torah. We've, we've spent, those of you, some of you are new or some of you have been here the whole time, but go back through and skim through. Remind yourself of where we've been. Subscribe, watch the videos, listen to the podcast while you're driving, working out, walking the dog, whatever. But keep yourself immersed in Torah. Because the more immersed in the Torah you are, the more the New Testament makes sense as it was intended to be read by its Jewish authors. All of them. Every New Testament author. So keep that in mind. You know, Don't just go, well, okay, well, we finished Deuteronomy, so now let's move on and I won't ever need to look at it again. Like, no, no, now, you've just, now we've, we've done a year-long introduction to the book. <laughs> and we did a year-long introduction to Numbers. And we, you know, so as we move into the historical books now, away from the Torah, and Joshua is a hinge book, Joshua concludes the things that Torah taught and, it, and makes way for what's going to come after the period of the, the judges and then the monarchy. Um, so Joshua is this hinge in between stage. But <clears throat> before moving into that, or as we move into that, always keep an eye back to where we've come from. Always keep an eye. That's what Israel did. All of their holidays. Remember all of their feasts? They looked back. This is how God brought us out of Egypt. And they looked forward. Therefore, this is the deliverance that we can trust that he'll bring about in the end. So we want to have double vision, looking back and looking forward, looking back and looking forward. And then the present makes a lot more sense in light of both of those if we have eyes to see and ears to hear. And mouths to eat. We've got food left over here. We're done for the day, so grab seconds. If you need some to-go boxes, grab those. Um, guys, it's been an awesome year. Thank you so much. Again, I can't, at least not, like one final plug. If you're looking, you're just dying to give to some good cause before the end of the year to get that tax receipt. Disciple Dojo is a 501c3 nonprofit. Give to us and you will continue. You'll help make sure that this kind of thing continues. So have a great week. Have a great rest of the year. Good holidays and come back in January ready for Joshua. Take care.